Welcome back to Reflect Forward. I'm your host, Carrie Siggins, and I'm so happy you're here today. I am thrilled to bring you my guest today. He's such an inspiring person, Mr. David Belzer. Uh, he's the co-founder of Sports One Marketing and formerly served as the CEO for the renowned Lee Steinberg Sports and Entertainment Agency, which was the inspiration for Jerry Maguire, one of my all-time favorite movies. He has been recognized by Variety Magazine as the Sports Humanitarian of the Year and awarded the Ellis Island Medal of Honor. He's also the executive producer of the Bloomberg and Amazon Prime Television series, Two Minute Drill and Office Hours. His life's mission is to empower over 1 billion people to be happy. This simple yet powerful mission has led him on an incredible journey to provide one thing, value. In this interview, that is exactly what you will get. He is so inspiring and you can't help but just smile every time he is uh, telling a story and sharing his love and light. I met David when I went on his show Office Hours uh, a couple of months ago and we hit it off and I knew I had to have him on Reflect Forward. So without any further ado, I will bring you David. Hold tight and I'll be right back. All right. Welcome back, everybody. David, I'm so glad you're here on the show with me today. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me. It's wonderful to be here, to have a platform to help people and hopefully empower them to help other people. Yes, that's what you're good at. All right, let's jump in. So I got goosebumps when I read your story about your childhood because I, too, was raised by a single mom who was a school teacher. And I promised myself I would always make money so that I wouldn't struggle like she did to make ends meet. So I'm super curious about your story. Tell us what it was like being David the Kid. Well, David the Kid was also money motivated to buy his mom a house and a car. I grew up with six kids, a single mom, like you said, second grade teacher, packed my dinner many nights into a paper bag so she could fill up turnstiles at convenience stores with greeting cards. And she would tell us to study really hard because that was the way that we could have whatever we wanted uh, was to study really hard. It was doctor, lawyer, or failure. And my five siblings, my four other brothers and my sister listened to her. They all went to Harvard, Penn, Columbia. She was an extraordinary mom. Um, I always tell people, because I love to give parenting advice because I had one of the greatest parents ever to live and she's still alive. Uh, number one, wake your kids up early. My mom made sure that with six kids as a single mom that we were all up by 5 a.m. So we were never awake for trouble. Uh, we, you know, The only trouble I got into was falling asleep at parties, trying to get into trouble and people writing on my forehead. Um, but the second one is she's a black belt in the martial arts. So study martial arts if you're a single parent. Uh, she was a third degree black belt in the martial arts of Jewish guilt. Uh, so I, I was terrified of hurting her feelings and uh, I wanted to do everything I could to please her and to make her happy. Um, but I had a different methodology. It wasn't going to be education, although I naturally was a good student. I'm the only one in my family ever to get a B. Um, and I always say it took half as much time and energy to get all A's and a B and it did to get my siblings to get all A's. Uh, so I think I outsmarted them. Uh, but moreover, I just wanted to be rich. I thought money would buy me happiness. And I thought it would buy me love. I grew up happy and loved, but the only thing was missing was when something went wrong financially, my mom would cry. She would be so stressed out. She only wanted the best for her children and couldn't afford to give us the best. And so I was going to resolve that with money. And so did money buy you happiness and love? 
Well, I was blessed. I graduated law school, made my first million nine months out of law school. And if you would have asked me when I was 24 and I bought my mom a house and a car and paid off my law loans, I would have told you I was right. Money buys love and happiness. And then when in 1995, we sold the company for 3.4 billion with a B, I would have told you without a doubt, money buys love and happiness. And at 30, when I ran Samsung's phone division, uh, at 30, married to my dream girl from the fourth grade, living in my dream house with my dream cars and my dream boat and my dream motorhome and the dream properties that I owned, I would have told you absolutely money buys love and happiness. But by the time I was 36, when I was a multimillionaire, running the most notable sports agency in the world, a place called Lee Steinberg Sports Entertainment. They made the movie Jerry Maguire about our firm. Um, I wasn't happy and I had more money than I ever dreamed of. And I always say, it's the one time in my life I get choked up thinking about it. You know, my mom would not have been proud of me. You know, I just, yeah. I did not, <laughs> I didn't live to what she taught me to. And I wasn't happy and I did dumb things and I surrounded myself with dumb people. See, the problem was I not only was I really rich, but I had access to everything. And the other problem was everybody was telling me yes. Uh, the reason I was hired to run the most notable sports agency was because of my financial success. And yet I was an exact example of what not to do. I'd surrounded myself with the wrong people, the wrong ideas. I was buying things I didn't need to impress people I didn't even like. And uh, so many people buy things to be happy. Uh, through a variety of circumstances, you know, my wife especially told me to take stock in who I was. I was lying, cheating, manipulating, overselling, backend selling way too much. I was drinking and using drugs and all types of other dumb things. And thank goodness she didn't tell me yes. She told me that I needed to take stock in who I was, what I wanted to become. Threatened to leave me. Uh, to, and this is, I was 36 years old. This is two years, ironically, before I lost everything. Um, but I did. I changed my direction. I changed my philosophy about money to money wasn't going to buy me love or happiness, but it would allow me to shop. I'm one of the few people, you know, money is still super important to me. In fact, my you know tagline is make a lot of money, help a lot of people and have a lot of fun. So I believe money, uh, if you shop for the right things, for the right reasons, definitely can make you happy. Uh, but you have to shop for the right money allows you to shop. And at this vibration, this frequency, shopping for the right things for the right reasons, like I've built community centers in Africa, I've built colleges and high schools, I've donated scholarship money. I've done some extraordinary things because I have great ability to make money. It's a lot better than the earlier things I was buying, cars and things, watches and jewelry to impress people, uh, ironically, that I didn't even like. Yeah, this still resonates because I had the same problem uh, in my 20s and had this very, you know, deep rooted need for recognition um, to be seen as, you know, powerful, as smart, as, as successful, as sexy, all those things that were led to very destructive behavior. I didn't understand that about myself, like what, why I had that need to be recognized. And, you know, it almost caused me to die. I overdosed um in 2006 and, and began my journey must, of self-awareness. So what year. is it? Must've been a good year for both of us, 2006. That's what, that's what my body into. <laughs> I know you told me that and, and I want to talk about that, but I want to know about how you, how did you start building self-awareness? Like what did you do to examine who you were and, and who you wanted to be so that you could make pretty significant changes? 
you know, for the first thing was, it was the first time I looked inside myself. My wife had put such a shock into me. Uh, and then my immediate reaction was anger, was blame, shame, and justification, the world of liability. Um, and, you know, it's ironic because I was remember sitting on the bed after my wife threatened to leave me, waking up the next morning. I'd lied to her and went to the Grammy Awards with Little John and partied my butt off. And I, she told me when I came home, she was leaving me and wasn't happy. I woke up the next morning blaming her for everything. And I looked into my closet and I had seen a jacket my father had given me six years earlier when I turned 30. Uh, a jacket that he gave me that also ended in an argument of me telling him I hated him because he gave me a jersey telling me, a, a jacket telling me uh, it had no pockets, that it was for me because I was just like him. And I called him a liar, a cheater, a manipulator, an overseller, a backend seller. I told him I hated him. So I sat there on my bed so angry and I looked over and I saw the jacket and maybe the first time in a few years. And I just, it, it hit me a divine intervention. I call it. Everyone talks about this. I wasn't a man of very much faith, to be honest. Um, but it hit me. I looked at that jacket and I broke down and I started realizing, man, I don't hate my wife. I don't hate my father. I hated myself. And I started to examine myself. I have everything I ever dreamed of. It wasn't even like I teach myself and my children, don't take for granted what other people are dreaming of. I was taking for granted what I dreamed of. I mean, that, talk about the ultimate ignorance and arrogance. And I sat there crying and then breathing. And those words kept saying, you know, in my mind, take stock in who you are. Take stock. In, and I started to search for who I was. And I wasn't. I didn't know who I was. I lost who I was. And so I started thinking about what did my mom teach me? You know what? Like I said, would my mom be proud of who I was? Not what I made. See, my mom never cared about what I made. But who would she be proud? And if she would be, if she wouldn't be proud, then who would she be proud of? And I said, number one, my mom taught me gratitude. So I, I started looking to see where I had lost that ability to find the light, the love, and the lessons and everything, to look at things as a optimist, to have a perspective of always being grateful, no matter what or how little I had. I was always the most grateful person. And then forgiveness. My mom talked all the time about if you want to live in peace, you need to forgive and forgive yourself. You're going to make mistakes. If you try really hard, you'll make more mistakes than anyone. So you got to learn to forgive yourself for making those mistakes so you can go and grow. And then she talked about accountability. Man, this was a big one for me because I remember my whole childhood. She would tell me, you're going below the line. Don't blame other people. You're living in shame. Quit justifying everything. You're accountable. Ask yourself what you did for this. Ask yourself what you're supposed to learn from it. Don't live below the line, David. And there I was so far below the line that my bottom had a basement that day. And then finally, effective communication. You know, I have learned later in my life, right? This effective communication. I was an extremely good communicator with other people, but I had forgot to communicate with the greatest source, the omniscient source, the all-powerful source, the all-knowing source. And that source, see, this shift in my paradigm changed my life. I had three daughters under eight. And somebody told me, uh, at this time said, you know, the way you feel about your daughters, you know what I saw when you were talking about Jack's your eight-year-old son. And, and I saw it. I said, I know how she feels. She will do anything, anything in the world would give everything 
to her son. And I would do the same for my three daughters at the time. I have a son now too. But the way that I feel about them and the way my mom feels about me is the same way this omniscient, all-powerful, all-knowing source feels about me. And why was I so afraid? Why did I feel so imperfect? Why did I feel so separate? If the greatest source that knew everything, unlike me, I can't do everything for my children because I'm ignorant. I, I don't know everything. But there's something so much more powerful and all-knowing than me that feels the same way about me. What am I so afraid of? And that's where that idea of allowing life to come through me. No longer was it for me. I, I wasn't going to buy things I didn't need to impress people I didn't like. No longer was I a victim and life was going to happen to me in a world of not enough. And I learned that day that I was going to live and strive to my potential to live between limitlessness and infinity, to spend minutes and moments in fear, not days, not weeks, not months, not years. And instead of thinking, I'm going to go get happy, I'm going to go get healthy, I'm going to go get worthy, I'm going to go get wealthy, I am happy, I am healthy, I am wealthy, and I am worthy. All I'm going to focus in on is what am I doing to interfere with it? What am I doing to interfere with it? And that's when my life changed. And for 16 years, I've been pursuing uh, clearing that interference and spending minutes and moments in fear instead of days, weeks, months, and years. I love that. That's so inspiring. And uh, I love everything your mom said. I mean, it feels like I could be your mom. <laughs> I say those things all the time. The hardest thing for me through my journey of turning my life around and not becoming like a narcissist, stopping being a narcissistic asshole, because that's what I was uh, in many ways, uh, was the, the self-forgiveness piece of it. You know, I did so many things that I was ashamed of and hurt people along the way, especially people who I loved and people who I couldn't find to go apologize to. And those were, you know, they still leave a little bit of a scar on my heart because like, I'm okay. All the things that I did to myself, I know I'm resilient and I'm going to be okay. But, you know, the impact that you have on other people and when that impact is negative is so profound. So how did you go through that self-forgiveness? And did you go apologize to people who you hurt along the way? Well, first I learned to apologize to myself because I can't give what I don't have. So I decided that I would go in the way that I would apologize to myself is I would learn the lessons so I would improve myself for the future. Then I created a great chain of feeding in my life. And I said, I'm going to surround myself with the best people and the best ideas that 80% of my time was spent on people, ideas, and things that were bleeding me. What if I could reallocate that source of energy that I had, that extraordinary source that gave me the success, wealth, happiness, and worthiness that I thought I had? What if I could change and shift that energy to what fed me? And so I started to determine who in my life fed me and I let people fall away. And I also had to fire people. Uh, and that was the hardest is, and my wife gave me this idea, but I went to a few of the people that just were bleeding me. Um, and I said, look, this has nothing to do with you. This has everything to do with me. I don't like myself or the things I do when I'm around you. I'm accountable for those things. But at this time in my life, I can't be around it. I don't like the way that I feel. And so I'm going to have to say goodbye. And please know that I love you and pray for your happiness. Uh, but I hope you do the same for me. And um, 
I never asked for anyone's forgiveness. I don't think uh, that, uh, you know, for, for me, I, I don't think that's my place to ask for someone's forgiveness. I'm hoping by my actions uh, that people want to forgive me. And if long as I can concentrate on forgiving myself, the funny thing was uh, most people didn't even recognize what was going on. It was all within myself, most of it. And uh, the people, uh, the, the people that um, I felt as if I deserved forgiveness or wanted forgiveness from, I thanked instead. It's kind of like, you know, people say, I'm sorry for being late. And I have learned to say, thank you for your patience instead. I thank them for their understanding instead of asking for their forgiveness. Yeah, that's beautiful. I love that. So now let's talk a little bit about 2006, your 2006. <laughs> Rough year, huh? Yeah. Uh, so what was going on? What happened? How did you go broke? How did you lose it all? So, you know, what I did is I didn't ask for help. So from the time I was 24 uh, all the way through 2006, um, I never asked anyone for help. And so I overextended myself, never had any financial advice. I really wasn't financially literate. I was just super rich. Uh, and so I bought a golf course, a ski mountain, 33 homes, and I had a lot of equity. It wasn't if my timing was even bad in 2006. Uh, my difficult thing was that I didn't understand financing, meaning that uh, I got into a lawsuit and I let my ego, I wanted to prove myself right, even though I'm a lawyer, and I was always told, you know, the worst thing you can do as a lawyer or as anyone is get into a lawsuit. And uh, I went through all my cash trying to prove that I was right. My attorney committed malpractice. And, you know, the universe just kept bringing the pain, the struggles, the setbacks. In other words, it was giving me an indicator I had a better place to be. And it was propelling me to somewhere better. Uh, but I had a lesson to learn. And that lesson is called radical humility. I didn't ask for help. And so when I went to the bank to get more money, uh, they said, no, I said, wait, I have a private bank, a private relationship. I have $40 million, uh, in equity. You know, are you kidding me? All I need is, you know, another five. And they said, sorry, things aren't going well for the bank right now. Go to a different bank. Meanwhile, my equity was shrinking. The market was stressful. When you are, have that big of an economy moving and you're not liquid, things get ugly really quickly. Uh, the lawsuit continued. Like I said, I ended up losing the lawsuit because of malpractice. Even when I was in bankruptcy, I gave the settlement that was instant from the law firm that committed malpractice on me. But the, it was the universe. You know, I, I analogize it all the time. You know, I see pain, setback, failures, mistakes, just like I'm reaching out to put my hand into a fire and my mom screamed at me, scared the crap out of me. And I cried. Uh, why was she doing it, right? She wanted to put me in a better place, protect me. And so that whole period of my life, I was putting my hand too close to the fire. And like you said, I think you almost died. I almost died. Uh, I was as close to, you know, my first OD or my first DUI or whatever negative thing was about to happen. If it wasn't for my wife, like she said that night when she told me she was leaving, she said, you got to take stock in who you are and what you want to become because you're going to end up dead. And that, and she was sure of it. And she said, I just can't be around to see this. This is sad. And it still chokes me up. And I know you know what that feels like. Uh, I just feel blessed that I didn't have to hit rock bottom uh, with those types of things. All I did was lose over a hundred million dollars, um, which, you know, money's a renewable resource. My health is not. Yeah. 
Absolutely. You know, I think having that support system is so key. I, I would not have been able to turn my life around if I wouldn't have been able to come home to my mother. And it was humiliating. I was living this dual life of, you know, successful sales professional and, uh, and making a lot of money and then, you know, having this severe drug problem on, on the other side. And, and it all came crashing together. And if I wouldn't have been able to call her and say, I need help, I need to come home, even though that was the most humiliating conversation that I ever had, going home to live with your mother was not part of my plan, uh, I wouldn't have been able to do it without her. And so you're so lucky that you had your wife, because I think if we don't have that strong support system and people who believe in us, it's almost impossible to to get your life back on track. And so many people uh, aren't fortunate enough to have that kind of support system or have destroyed that kind of support system. So your wife um, sounds amazing and you're lucky to have her. Oh my gosh. And my mom as well. So it was nice. I had a backup plan uh, just in case you're (laughs) you're blessed as well. And I think it's so important. Um, And I think faith, uh, you know, just having faith and hope uh, that a better place, a better position, a better situation. And I, I had a, a friend who worked with suicide teenagers, suicidal teenagers commit suicide this past weekend. And, you know, I'm on a mission to empower people to be happy. And, you know, it, there's no, no, I, I was here for help, right? I, I mean, nobody probably tells people ask for help more than I do. Nobody tells people I got five minutes for everyone. Nobody gives their email, david at dmeltzer.com out more than I do, or my cell phone number. Ask for help, ask for help. And here's someone, you know, that's fairly close to me. (laughs) And, uh, you know, he didn't ask for help. Imagine if he had the support system that that you do um, and were able to do that. So, uh, yeah. It just, it, it's still just as amazing. People that don't ask for help can lose lots of money, lose lots of relationships, or even lose their life. Yeah, I know. I know we're feeling so disconnected. I actually just wrote an article on that. Like, you know, what what is wrong? Why are people not feeling joy? And I think American individualism, as, as amazing it can be, is also making us miserable because we're not as connected, uh, you know, at a deep, meaningful level, right? You can have lots of friends, you can know lots of people, but if you don't feel that connection, like, you know, somebody, I feel connected, not even I know somebody loves me, but I feel connected. I think it's, it's causing so much misery and suffering and I don't know, feeling like it's hopeless. And so, you know, how do you go about, you know, building those really meaningful connections? I mean, is it, is it through helping? Like, what do you do? Well, first, I think it's the relationship you have with self because you give meaning to everything you see. And if you don't learn to love yourself, nobody will love you. Uh, And because your perceptions will see that. And so for me, it's understanding, number one, control of my mindset. I'm the only one that has control of my mindset. Two, control of my heart set. I have control of the way I feel. And then control of my conscious continuum, what I think, say, do, believe, even trying to activate and deactivate and change the genetic and energetic inheritance that we receive through our personality traits, characteristics, our obsessions and addictions that have maybe been uh, targeted towards certain things, not just by us, but by previous generations or lifetimes. Uh, And so I'm very aware of the three controls uh, that 
project who I am to others and allow me to create the illusion that I want of love of others. But it's really funny. When I learned to love myself, truly love myself, all the people that I wanted to love me all of a sudden loved me. And all the people, you know, when I didn't love myself and you had chip on my shoulder and resentment and offense, you know, it all went away. It's amazing. Once I learned to love me and once you love yourself, you can be loved. I I totally agree. It's such a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you hate yourself and want strong relationships, it's almost impossible to have. When you love yourself, it comes so much easier. And, And I don't think people really truly understand the power of that when they're living in self-hatred or negative self-talk and, and poor body images, all those things that we do to ourselves that, um, that tear down. Yeah. We all do it. And you and I still do it. It's just, I've learned to spend minutes and moments. That's all I did. I'm not spending days, weeks, months, and years there anymore. I just spend minutes and moments when I hear negative chatter or I have a need to be right, offended, separate, inferior, superior, anxious, frustrated, angry, guilty. I have those feelings every single day, but I have practiced spending minutes and moments there. That's it. I'm not going to spend any more time. I'm not wasting any more energy. Not when I've been granted an amazing gift with an amazing, powerful uh, journey ahead of me. And I will not take for granted, not just what other people are wishing for. I will never again take for granted what I was wishing for as well. All right. So let's talk about that because I think, you know, a lot of people in your situation, you know, hitting rock bottom after being at such that high would be mad at themselves, blaming others, like you talked about, embarrassed by what happened. So how did you pick yourself up and start over again? Well, I got very pragmatic. Um, So I really stuck to discipline. And this is where I came up with, from that day forward, I would learn to enjoy the consistent every day, persistent without quit pursuit of my own potential. No longer what other people wanted for me, no longer what I did want, no longer what it was missing in my life. I was only gonna focus in on, and I created these five daily practices because I wanted to be consistent. I was gonna wake up every day and know my what personally, experientially giving and receiving. What do I want today? Me, who can help me and who can I help? How am I going to get this done productively, accessibly, meaning accessible to others and accessing what I want and with gratitude, with the superpower of consistently finding the light, the love and the lessons. And of course, with that, that gratitude comes along the study of that time pragmatically activity I get paid for, don't get paid for activity. I planned. I don't have planned even my sleep. Um, and I was going to ask for help. And so from day one, I started utilizing this, what, who, and how, and then I realized when I knew my, what, my, who, my, how, all of a sudden I knew my now I knew my being present. I knew what to do. I knew what was important to me. I wasn't trying to please anybody else. I knew what was important to me and urgency being a subset of that importance, but not a superset where I would just do what other people thought I needed to do. And it became most urgent, even though it wasn't important to me. I now knew my now and even better when you know your what, your who and your how, and you know your now and being present, you now apply your why. No longer are you looking for something you already have. You, instead of searching for your why, you apply your why to the what, the who, thou, and the now. And then you get exponential growth, acceleration. It took me two weeks to make back my first million dollars utilizing the methodology. My biggest problem was shame and embarrassment. Through that, because it was economically and ego-wise such a 
blow to the ignorant, arrogant human being, the narcissist that I was, it took me years uh, to, to not be embarrassed, uh, which is so funny there because I would say, I think one of the things that, uh, and I built a huge community, resonates with my community most is my vulnerability of who I am. And even probably for the first five years, if somebody would have told me that I would tell the truth about myself to anyone, even my wife or my mom, um, I, 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 I would rather, you know, get naked on a stage, you know, which is quite embarrassing for me. So I, I, I wouldn't do it. And here today, I'm so comfortable with who I am. Um, and I don't even consider it vulnerability. I consider it invulnerability because when I share who I am, there's nothing you can hold against me or around me or through me. This is who I am. And you know what? I, I am here for everyone, but I'm not for everyone. And, I, and once I realized that, that I'm here for everyone, but not everyone's going to like me. And that's okay because I'm for me and I'm for everyone else, but they don't have to be for me. Yeah, I totally understand. Uh, my, my mom actually just said the same thing to me. She was reading one of uh, Forbes interview on my journey. And she said, you know, how did you, how are you not embarrassed to say this? How are you okay with your employees knowing this whole story? And I thought back to 10 years ago, very similar to you. I would have never shared this until one very vulnerable moment when I shared my story and it helped someone else. And I thought, this is the key, right? We are all flawed human beings. We're all just trying to pretend that we're not flawed human beings. And so what happens if we actually just talk about it and connect on it and help each other with it? And all of a sudden, sharing my story became so much safer to do because I could see it would make an impact um, rather than have people shun me or judge me, you know, for, for being a drug addict. And, uh, and I think that's a really powerful thing. I think uh, leaders need to shine their light on their flaws. So other people realize that it's safe to be imperfect and messy and, you know, leaders who we look up to and admire are that way too, but we're still good, lovable people, uh, successful people, despite our flaws or maybe because of our flaws. Yeah, just like my favorite Sesame Street book with Grover. I'm the monster at the end of my book. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's so good. <laughs> All right, let's talk sales and marketing. I love sales and marketing. I went to engineering school, which was a huge mistake. Uh, well, yeah, got me where I am today, but I love sales and marketing. I'm not an engineer. In fact, if I designed a bridge, you shouldn't drive on it. Uh, <laughs> and you're a sales guru, so... <laughs> I can sell you a bridge. Don't drive on it. That's so good. So how has being a great salesman led you to being a great CEO? Well, in order to be a great salesperson, you have to be an intelligent follower. I have templated out sales in my book to number one, uh, especially today with the reach that we have uh, to, to look for open minds. You know, I'm very keen on vetting people only for a closed mind, because if I can find an open mind, I can ask you what you're doing today, what you like about it and what you don't like about it. And if you answer those questions, most likely you have an open mind. And then I can ask you, would it help you if I did this or that? And some of the things that I can help you with are things I can monetize and others, others can monetize. And when I find that I then can conveniently and confidently ask you, Hey, do you know anyone that can help me? And when you ask an open mind, hey, do you know anyone that can help me? They become one of two people. One, 
they're a sponsor. They say, sure, I know someone that can help you. And now they've created value and extended that value and created a flow of value. And then some, you even hit the bonus round, they're called a power sponsor. They say to you, man, I can help you. And by the way, I know tons of other people that can help you. Now you've exponentially grown. So understanding in the respect of sales of how to ask people for help and value by providing value to them. In fact, my daily prayer has changed over the year to simply may God put in front of me at least 10 people I can help to also may God put at least 10 people that can help me. And through the context of that uh, questioning, uh, that open-ended questioning to be an intelligent follower, to learn more and be more interested than interesting, I also learned how to be credible, to be honest. Uh, you know, it's amazing. The number one thing that sells is credibility. And yet people jeopardize their credibility all the time by overselling, back end selling, lying, manipulating and cheating or unintentionally lying uh, by not uh, being more diligent or, or knowing the facts. And the minute somebody finds out that your credibility is jeopardized, they will then seek more areas, even if they're not true, to discredit you. Uh, if you're 100% credible, you will get every sale that's ever created. Uh, and, you know, I could tell anyone, if I had 100% credibility, I could tell anyone, hey, wire me a million dollars, I'll send you back two million at the end of the week, and they'll do it. Um, so we're always striving to be as credible as possible. But then the second one is that emotional attachment of finding out, being curious, to be uh, inquisitive and interested about where can I truly provide value uh, and what do you like and don't like is the key to an emotional attachment. And then the rest is math. This is where your engineering really is a great background for sales. You may not know the calculations in order to stabilize a bridge or a basement, but you do know math. Uh, and the math is so essential to sales, meaning can you quantify the reasons? Can you quantify the impact and can you utilize the capabilities, the features and benefits as an arsenal in order to add math? In other words, are you capable of articulating a quantitative value to exceed what you're asking for? And utilizing open-ended and open-mindedness and open-hearted and open-handedness and understanding the math of what you do pertaining to synergistic supplementary aligned with somebody else's values the statistical success and efficiencies of sales become one of the greatest professions and the greatest, to me, experiences of my life. And it's applicable to sharing a vision that I have, which is to empower others, to empower others to be happy, to empower over a billion people by finding a thousand carries in the world that I know that can empower a thousand more to empower a thousand more. The math makes sense to me just as it should to you, a thousand times a thousand a million, a million times a thousands a billion. Imagine creating a collective consciousness of happiness, a collective consciousness of abundance, of limitlessness and infinity, a collective consciousness of more than enough of everything for everyone. And uh, that will change the world. It just takes one particle of light to overcome a million particles of darkness. Eight billion, eight billion people, if we can have a billion particles of light, I promise to it's just a matter of time before this universe expands, accelerates and aggregates upon itself. And everyone's walking around with a big smile on your face like you and I. I love that. I just got done reading uh, Becoming Supernatural by Dr. Joe Desperanza. Phenomenal book. Yes. And um, I love the story that he told about the collective meditation and how, you know, during that time period, crime fell and, you know, healthcare incidents fell. And 
And I wish that more people understood the power of, of that, of that mindset and that positivity and kindness and empowerment and gratitude, because we literally could just change the world by simply thinking differently. <laughs> and, uh, and I just don't know that a lot of people understand the power of their thoughts, uh, negative or positive. But boy, if we could get that kind of message out there, right, a billion people really changing the way that we think about things and putting that positivity out there, you're right, we would expand. We don't need somebody to come in and save us. We can save ourselves. <laughs> I sure hope so. <laughs> uh, yeah, me too, me too. All right, so you're not afraid to uh, to share your emotions, to show your emotions. I love that. During my office uh, episode of Office Hours, you got emotional and made me love you even more. Um, and so why do you think it's important to you know share your vulnerability or as you call it, your invulnerability? Yeah, I think it's your true self. We talk so much in a branded authenticity, genuineness, organic things. And, you know, to me, the best display of who you are is to let down the ego itself, the primal fears that we have, the need to flee, fight, the need to feed or even fornicate, the, the power of being ourselves completely invulnerable of this is who I am. Uh, I am on a journey. I will learn lessons. I will forget lessons. I have the power to access more lessons, but I'm doing three things here. One, I'm doing my best. Two, I'm learning lessons. And three, most importantly, I'm having fun. I'm having fun. Xander's wrote about rule number six. Don't take yourself so seriously. They asked him, what's rule number one through five? Go to rule number six. This is a journey. This is here. We're supposed to learn. We, doing your best feels great. Uh, you know, you told me a story about your incredible eight-year-old son who is the state champion in BMX racing. And it brought me to tears to think that, you know, in this year's state championship, he crashes and then he gets up and he pedals harder than he ever has to get third place. That's to me, like, I'm choking up because I want my kids to know what it's like to do your best, to learn a lesson, and have fun. And you told me you were more proud of that first third place finish than any first place finish that he's ever gotten. Because why? He did his best, he learned lessons, and he had fun. And if he can carry that forward, I promise you this world with leaders like that, as you stated, we wish we were one eighth of the wisdom and in, in person that your eight year old is. And I feel the same way about my children. So that's all there is to it. Yeah, I agree with you. I tell my team all, all the time, we, everything we do today is practice for what comes tomorrow. And tomorrow we're practicing for what's coming next. And so if you look at life as I'm practicing, I'm practicing. Sometimes I'm going to, you know, crash and sometimes I'm going to make mistakes. Sometimes I'm going to win. Uh, sometimes I'm not. And it's all just practice. I think it puts it into perspective, right? And, and that journey. I'm just practicing to be a better human being, a better leader, a better salesperson. And, uh, and I think that mindset is they can help people who think like there's just this goal. If I achieve this goal, then I'll be happy. No, you're yeah. just practicing for what comes next. <laughs> yeah, what a great way to put do not attach to an outcome. It's great to have milestones. Yeah. I don't believe in goals. I believe in milestones. I want to go past everything that I have and I don't want to limit myself. But that idea of practicing allows you to enjoy 
without emotions attached to I'll be happy when, and I hear that all the time. And I lived it for so long, I'm sure you did. I'll be happy when I close this deal. I'll be happy when I hit my number. I'll be happy when I get that bonus. I'll be happy when I graduate. I'll be happy when I get married. I'll be happy when I have a kid. <laughs> and then I'm never happy. But wow, yep. if you get happy practicing, I love to practice. If you say that, yeah. and I'm going to do everything I can, I I must be what I can be. I'm going to learn my lessons. Pain's pushing me to something better. I'm not being punished by anyone. Boy, the things that you will accomplish, the passion, the purpose, and profitability of your life will be limitless. Uh, we are asking for crumbs. We have so much capability. Stop getting in your own way. Learn to love you. And you can have everything you desire rapidly and accurately. I love it. I love it. All right. Now let's talk a little bit more about Sports One Marketing um, so that everybody understands exactly you know, who you serve and your why, because I know that's super important to you. So tell us exactly what you do. Yeah. So I was the I am the founder of Sports One Marketing. Um, December before COVID, I stepped out as CEO and worked on my own brand. As a speaker, author, entertainer, I have TV shows, podcasts, and um, my mission with that platform, with all my books, podcasts, TV shows, and movies, is to empower others to be happy. Uh, so I've taken what I've learned by running the most notable sports agency and sports marketing company, by taking the millionaires, billionaires, entrepreneurs, celebrities, athletes, and entertainers around the greatest events uh, in the world uh, for charity or for a cause meshing them all together and teaching people to make a lot of money, help a lot of people and have a lot of fun. I give everything I have for free. I'm probably one of the most consistent people uh, uh, that you'll meet. I have more content out there, uh, hopefully, than I than I should. But it's um, a journey that I love. And the funny thing was, I didn't I kind of shifted from, you know, putting on sports events for charities and bringing celebrities, athletes into this new Dave Meltzer brand with the help of Gary Vaynerchuk and some other people. Uh, but I never imagined I'd make more money. You know, like I, I let that all go. And, you know, I, I look back on my career and I'm like, wow, if I knew it could be this effortless, you know, if I could have taught myself to ask for help and to be myself and to allow things to happen by utilizing one, the law of gravity, by every morning saying, man, I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be. I have everything I need. I'm happy, healthy, wealthy, and worthy. And then still utilizing the law of Goya, which was the part I was always good at, G-O-Y-A, getting off my ass, being the best that I could be, doing everything I could. Then the law of allowance and attraction uh, take place that, you know, it's, not just giving everything I have, but it's receiving all that I can receive and then appreciating it, which adds value to it, and then acknowledging it, acquiring the knowledge of what I have by giving it away. When I give it away, what remains is a bigger vessel, which means I need to ask for more. And when I receive more, I need to appreciate it, which makes it even bigger. I then acknowledge it, acquire the knowledge by giving it away, which leaves even a bigger and that's been the journey that I've led, the lessons that I've learned, uh, especially over the last four years and in the transition through COVID to completely leaning in to my own personal brand, especially because there was no Super Bowl, Pro Bowl, Masters, Kentucky Derby, Breeders' Cup, SBs, Emmys, Oscars, or Grammys. Uh, I look at what I had control of, my mindset, heart set, and just continuum, and I leaned into the skills, knowledge, and desire that I had, and I ended up building a brand that I never dreamed of building my own brand, one that's helping other people build their own brands to be happy. I love it. Well, I'm glad you found something to do with your time. <laughs> 
Well, I love all of that. So I'm going to ask you my signature question because um, I think, you know, you've woven it all through this interview, but you know, the name of my, my uh, podcast is reflect forward. And I want to know what does reflect forward mean to you? Well, I love this question because time is something that I study every day and reflect forward means to be thoughtful. Uh, let me explain why. Uh, everybody thinks of reflecting forward in the context of man-made time, past, present, future, 24 hours of activity that each of us is given every day for activity we have planned, don't have planned in our sleep. Um, for me to reflect forward is acknowledging that the speed of thought moves much faster than that of the speed of light, which time is based off of. In other words, that if we can be thoughtful about what we do, thoughtful about the lessons that we've learned from the past, thoughtful in how we act in the present, we will reflect upon the future by being kind or thoughtful to our future self by doing good deeds, by doing our best, by learning the lessons and having fun. This is how we do good deeds. Uh, and it's historically shown human nature never changes. To reflect forward is to live in thoughtfulness. And so if I can leave one message aligned with your last question, remember everyone to be kind and to do good deeds. I promise you, you will reflect forward. I think that might be my favorite answer to this question. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I would say we, we resonate the same frequency. I literally could say the, and you would like, oh my God, I get that. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. We're kindred spirits, aren't we? Uh, all right. Is there anything extra? Sorry, go ahead. I said I feel the same way about you. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Uh, to wrap things up, is there anything extra special that you've got going on that you want to tell us about? Yeah, I would love, uh, honestly, if anyone wants anything from me, my ebook, audio book, you want me to sign a book, send it to you. I'll pay for the book and shipping. I have TV shows, podcasts. Just email me directly, david at dmelter.com. Please reach out, ask for help. I give five-minute phone calls to anyone in the world anytime and 20-minute meetings, 20-minute interviews. I will find the time because I live in thoughtfulness and I'll reflect forward and make sure I have it for you. Email me, david at dmelter.com. Awesome. All right. Well, David, thank you so much for coming on the show today. This was a very inspiring interview, and I appreciate your time. Appreciate you. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks. All right. Hang tight, everybody. I'll be right back. All right, everyone. I'm back. I hope you enjoyed that interview with David, uh, such an inspiring human being. Check out his shows. Uh, definitely reach out to him if you want that five-minute conversation or a 20-minute meeting. He absolutely lives and breathes his, his mission and vision and um, goal of being as helpful and adding value. All right. That's my show for today. I look forward to hosting you next week with advice from a CEO on Reflect Forward. And if you like this podcast, please rate, write to review, subscribe, and share. That's always appreciated. Thanks so much. Have a great day. Oh, 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 oh,